The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. All right, turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy in chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Open God's Word together in this final session. And uh, I want to speak to you on, uh, on the idea of the things that define a man of God. The things that define a man of God. And when I say man of God, I'm taking that phrase from Scripture, from our text. This would apply to women of God as well. And I wanted tonight's text to be very applicable for any Christian, particularly who wants to labor in ministry. So not just vocational people. Sometimes uh, at, at these uh, conferences, I, I don't ever want someone to come to the, one of these conferences who is a lay worker, small group leader, a mom, a dad, and feel like, man, that, that was kind of targeted just towards vocational people. And so we always try to make sure that in these conferences, we're addressing the full-time youth pastor and his wife, the full-time pastor and his wife, the, 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 the bivocational guy, and the volu- volunteer. And uh, some of you uh, are volunteers, and this is as applicable to you as would be uh, to those of us from vocational ministry four things that are going to uh, be in our text that define a man of God. And these are the four things that should define us. So in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 6, the, the, inter, the intro to our text, our text is going to be verses 11 and 12. But um, the intro to the text is going to be a lengthy intro, and it's the first 10 verses. So the intro to the text is an exposition on the first 10 verses, so I'm going to preach two sermons. And so this is exciting for me as a preacher. Um, in reality, I told you, uh, I told some of you this morning I had to cut my sermon in half, and so you're getting half of a sermon, uh, but since then I've added another half of a sermon, so I have three sermons. I don't even know what I'm, what I'm doing at this point, um, but we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going we're gonna to focus on verses 11 and 12, but I do want to give you some background to that. Actually, beginning in verse uh, number 2, um, verse number 3 rather. Verse number 3, the end of verse 2 and going into verse 3 will be our, our introduction. So First Timothy 6, end uh, of verse 2, at the beginning of that paragraph under false teachers and true contentment, it says this, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Sounds like one of my family reunions. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we are to be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and do a snare into many senseless and harmless desires, uh, harmful desires that 
plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's the introduction to our two verses that we're going to read and, and actually do our expositional work in verses 11 and 12. And the reason we need to read that is because what's going to happen is there's going to be this comparison and contrast. Uh, comparison can be a really good thing. Comparison can be a really negative thing. If you compare yourself to the right person, it can be really helpful, healthy. You, you have people maybe that, uh, that you look up to in ministry or in parenting that you want to emulate. There are people in my life, there's a, a man in particular that when I was a newlywed husband, uh, wondering how, how are you supposed to be a husband, and when I have a kid, how am I supposed to be a daddy? I didn't know what that was supposed to look like. And God led me to a man. It was the, it was the coolest thing. A guy approached me and, and said, uh, hey, and I was working at a farm. I was, I was doing farm work, and he said, I need some hay. And I heard that you were the guy could get me some hay. And, he'd, and, and we started working with cows, our cows together and sharing and hay responsibilities. And if you've ever lived in the farming community, that's, that can be a really tight network. And I got to see this guy's inner workings of his family. And just a dude that loved Jesus. He wasn't a pastor, wasn't a preacher, wasn't a, a, a ministry leader. Was a guy who viewed his job and his vocation as a ministry field. And then viewed his family as first and foremost in the responsibility that God had given him next to his own personal holiness. And I learned a lot from that guy. So comparing to someone like that. That's positive for me. That's good. I'm able to say this guy's 10 years ahead of me in life. I want to learn from him. Wishing you were the, some preacher who's, uh, who's famous. I don't want to name anybody. I'm trying to be careful here. Wishing that you could be the person that has that big stage or that venue or that you know, following. And wishing, you know, wishing you had more notoriety like so-and-so. That's a bad comparison. But people tend to, we compare things. Comparison's a, a natural part of our lives. And so... You know, you sit around and people debate, you know, who's better, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Michael Jordan's better. And so, so pe people debate. Uh, people were having a conversation last night about uh, boxers and talking about, like, it seemed like Mike Tyson was back. If, you can, if you're old enough to remember, like, this guy's going to be the most unstoppable thing to ever step in the ring. And he was just on this trajectory. And then the wheels fell off of his life. And he went crazy and started biting people's ears off and stuff. And, and that, that never goes good for you. Uh, hi, I'm Mike Tyson. I consume human ears. It's going to go downhill from that point. <laughs> you know, like uh, that, that was kind of so. But we compare, you know, comparison is something that we do. And what, what we have in this text is a good, sober mind, sobering comparison where, t where Paul, speaking to Timothy, is going to define the characteristics of a false teacher, a, a bad leader, and then he's going to compare that to what a man of God is. So those of you who, who like lists and you're like, just tell me what to do, tell me what not to do, give me a list, show me the parameters, and so I know how to, what lane to run in. Here it is. And in that first, in, in that first little bit that we just read as an introduction, verses uh, 2.5 through 10, he gives us, I condensed it down into five things that define false teachers. This is by way of introduction to our text. The first one, false teachers are defined by false and contrary to Jesus' teaching doctrine. So false doctrine or doctrine that is contrary to the things that Jesus teach. 
teaches in scripture or that Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. Don't teach false doctrine. Don't go, this doesn't, again, this is applicable to everyone, not just pastors. Don't go into small group and tell your students something that's not biblically rooted. You don't have the authority to do that. And you will answer for that. And I will answer for that. So don't teach false doctrine. Don't don't misappropriate the words of Christ. Don't change the words of Christ. Don't take something Jesus said and make it mean something else. Don't try to defuse the atomic bombs of Jesus' parables and sermons and, and try to soften the blow and the edge of the sword. Don't do that. Speak what is in accordance with what Jesus taught. To do that, you will have to labor over your ministry of teaching. And this is, again, if you're, if you're an assistant to the small group teacher of four eighth grade girls, this is applicable to you. This is not you're preaching all three services on Sunday morning to a thousand people each service. This is anybody who's going to open the word of God and say, thus saith the Lord, we don't get to infuse power into the word of God. It is a, it is a lit fire that is consuming history and one day we'll bring it to a close and start something that's new and eternal. So we don't get to defuse that. So we don't teach what is in accordance with, with false doctrine. Number two, false teachers are conceited. They're conceited. Don't be conceited. Don't be boastful. The opposite of, of pride and conceit is not humility. The opposite of pride and conceit is fear. Fear God in your ministry. Fear the Lord in your calling. Shake and tremble and Fear the Lord in the ministry that he's called you to. A fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A fear of the Lord is the foundation for preaching. A fear of the Lord is the foundation for discipleship and teaching. A fear of the Lord is the foundation for missions. A fear of the Lord is the foundation for my personal quiet time, my personal holiness, the sanctity of my marriage, and the way I parent my children. A fear of the Lord is the way that I honor my employer or my employees. Fear of the Lord is the way I walk through the doors of the church on Sunday morning. And a fear of the Lord is the opposite of conceit and pride. Not humility. Fear in God will bring humility. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And to fix my eyes on God and to bring into focus who He is in my life constantly and daily will bring a fear of God when I really recognize Him for who He is in Scripture. Number three, false teachers love to argue. Love to argue. Don't be argumentative for the sake of being argumentative. False teachers are argumentative. They love to argue. They're combative. They're vain in their arguments. They're insincere. Scripture says it's demonic to be like that. Number four, false teachers, false leaders create dissension. Create dissension. Many of us have experienced this horrible experience of a church split where one person starts to sow discord and create dissension, then another person, then another person, and pretty soon you've got fragmented sides and people start to choose sides and the wheels come off of that and then everybody unravels. And, and it's because dissension is, is, a, is a demonic thing. It's, it's Satan at work when dissension is being created. Number five, false teachers are driven by money. Driven by money. So we need to keep our greed in check. Why am I doing what I'm doing? You're like, well, I'm not getting paid. Yeah, but you get some good pizza parties out of the deal. So he's given us this this category of false teachers. Now, we want to compare 
over against the, the characteristics of false teachers, the characteristics of a man of God. Because in verse 11, he says, but as for you, O man of God. So there's a comparison. My oldest son, Tucker, uh, has a basketball trainer, a guy who instructs him. Guy from, uh, is, this dude is, I love this guy. His name's Carlos, Coach Carlos, and he's phenomenal. And, uh, but boy, he's got a rough background now, a rough background. Came out of the hood, and I mean, just a crazy story. And I love it because the, the schools, the public school, my kids go to public school, and the schools in this community, in, in this region, this whole region, this big bass region are tiny. Like public schools that are averaging between two and 400 students, ninth through 12th grade. And so uh, we're in the 1A division. And, and, and if you know anything about school uh, sizes and sports, usually 1A through 6A, some states go to 7A. We're 1A, okay? And so Coach Carlos has this, thing that he likes to say to my son during training where he'll yell to him d1 or 1a he said are you playing with the potential to make it to the division one level as a scholarship athlete or are you just satisfied to be good at 1a d1 or 1a i remember one time i was i'm a bow hunter and i love to shoot my bow and remember i was shooting my bow we're getting sighted in i got these new broadheads that's the razor blade tips that pierce through the lungs and heart of an animal and bring carnage and death to that animal so that you might debone it and fillet it and eat it and feed your family. It's a fantastic pastime. And so we're out shooting our, we're shooting our bows. And my buddy, man, he's, he's center punching. Bam, bam, bam. He's hitting the bullseye. And I'm like off by about, my groups are about two inches off. And I'm like, we're, we're back about 40, 50 yards. I'm like, I'm good to go. You think I'm good to go? I'm good to go. It's good. He said, yeah, it's good unless you want to hit it where you're supposed to. So comparison in that context is a good thing. So when we look at the, like these characteristics of a false teacher, now what am I going to compare myself to? I want to compare myself to false teachers and see how much truth there is in what we just read about me and my ministry. And I want to examine it every single day. I want to examine it. Then, but as for you, O man of God, he bridges this thought with the word but. So we're going we're gonna to shift to but... As for you, O man of God, when he calls him a man of God. In contrast to the leadership of the Ephesian church, Timothy is described in the fewest of words. Man of God. To be a man or woman of God, to be called that is the greatest yet simplest description I could ask for and work towards. The contrast is from a complicated, selfish position to a clear, that of a clear testimony that's being lived out. In the Old Testament, God often described prophets as men of God. The man of God, Moses, Joshua, the man of God, Elijah, the man of God, Isaiah, even King David. Timothy is being semantically compared with these men. David and Moses were considered the deliverers of Israel, and yet their failures are front and like foremost in our minds. And we've even looked at that today. A man of God prophesied against the priest Eli that his sons would die and the priesthood would be taken from his family. It's a big responsibility. Messianic prototypes who looked like Christ in the Old Testament that are called men of God. It's the greatest honor anyone could have bestowed on them and the most coveted among pastors and elders and lay leaders and small group teachers. Man of God. Woman of God. The church needs men and women of God 
these characteristics are true of. I share for you a journal entry from my own journal that I find to be a little bit comical, but sober, and it's a good challenge. In 1 Kings 13, the man of God speaks against Jeroboam and gives a prophecy that is ultimately fulfilled. On his way home, he disobeys the Lord and is killed by a lion as judgment from God. The man has been faithful, then he's eaten by a lion. God expects the man of God to be faithful in every way. People often say to me, you need to relax. You need to take it easy. But I cannot relax. I cannot take it easy when it comes to preaching and ministering the Word of God. That's like telling an Apache helicopter pilot to take it easy. It's like telling a combat infantryman in northern Afghanistan to take it easy. I don't get to take it easy ever. Take it easy, get mauled by a lion. It's a lesson for me in my journal that day. Do I expect a lion to eat me on my way home? No, I would shoot him in the face. However, (laughs) there is a roaring lion that loves nothing more than to devour marriages, consume ministries, divide churches, and make us look look like an absolute joke before the world. There's a real lion that wants to get us. And so he gives these Four characteristics that define the man of God. Here's the first one. Number one, in, 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 in opposition or contrary to what uh, the false teachers were, four things that define a man of God. And these are the four things that should define us in our ministry. Number one, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Number one, a man of God, a woman of God is defined by what he or she flees from flees from what do we run away from what do you flee from that's a question we should be asking ourselves do you run to sin or away from sin paul's telling timothy to flee from the vanity greed and divisiveness that is so prevalent among those false leaders in ephesus that he's just addressed in the first 10 verses the man of god will be tempted with and attacked in the flesh by those things it happens timothy needs to run away from it sometimes the most courageous thing that i can do is run away from something 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, I should flee sexual sin. It's not something I want to stand and fight against. I want to read to you something that a friend, pastor, brother shared with me recently. It says, there tends to be a chain of events that lead to adultery. Talk about adultery for a minute. That'll be fun. Awesome. Why do we need to talk about that? Because it is literally, I believe, quite possibly the most destructive force moving against the church right now. The number of men and women, and there was a time where it seemed like we talked to men who were dealing with this. In the last five years, I've dealt with, we've dealt with as many families where the wife was committing adultery as we have men, where the man was. And I don't, it's, I mean, the volume is just, staggering what do we flee from what do we flee from we're talking about what we flee from in the context of first timothy 6 we're talking about fleeing from false doctrine false teaching run away from the temptation to puff yourself up when you preach run away from the temptation to speak and use the pulpit as 
an assault vehicle. Run away from the temptation to be divisive or to speak behind somebody's back. But we have to address this idea that there's a time and a place to run away from temptation of sexual sin. Listen to this. There tends to be a chain of events that leads to adultery. Number one, the presence of a certain internal or external circumstantial uh, factor. Number two, growing awareness of a particular person. Number three, time spent thinking about the person's attractiveness. Number four, unplanned innocent meetings and contacts. Number five, spend time comparing the person with my present mate. Number six, spend time thinking about personal unhappiness. Number seven, planned intentional contact. Number eight, after occasion, seek other person out for conversation. Number nine, continue fellowship with this person after others depart. Number 10, increasing awareness of good feelings when you are with the other person. Number 11, compare the way you feel about this person with the way you feel about your mate. Number 12, compare the way you're treated by the person with the way you're treated by your mate. Number 13, look for ways you can be with the other person for apparently legitimate reasons. Number 14, exchange of apparently innocent forms of physical contact. Number 15, escalates to more passionate embracing and kissing. Number 16, practical denial and you start rationalizing. Number 17, experience struggles with your conscience. Number 18, 18 desire for contact with each other continues. Number 19, actual sexual involvement. Number 20, frequent covert meetings. Number 21, double life. Number 22, others are suspicious and confront you. Number 23, defensiveness and denial. Number 24, the truth is revealed and exposed. I don't know who wrote that. I have no idea. A buddy of mine sent it to me in a text. Said, hey man, look at this. This is intense. That's the progression. And it starts because at some point, the Holy Spirit is saying, run away. Flee, get, run, but we linger. Man of God is defined and determined by what he flees from. What you flee from matters. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee idolatry. Uh, I'm not going to lie, this is a big struggle for me, materialism. Let's be honest, it's a, it's a serious struggle for me. I don't have a lot of stuff, but I do like toys and gadgets and not like tech gadgets. I don't know what model phone I have. I don't know what computer I have. I like, like man toys. <laughs> Guns, explosive things, and <laughs> things that go fast and make a loud noise doing it. You know, like flea idolatry. What's that look like for us? I don't know. Relationship idolatry, man. Don't make your kids idols. Don't make their sports idols. Don't like, we've got to run away from that. We've got to combat that. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions. A true man of God will spend his whole life running from and avoiding certain things. These things are usually the very things that define false teachers. These are the things that false teachers use their influence to obtain. Paul's drawing a contrast. Number two, keeps going. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness. Number two, a man of God is defined by what he follows after, what he pursues. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. 
He's defined by what he follows after. If I spend my life pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, then I believe that through the Holy Spirit, I will grow in all of those areas. But the moment I begin to lose this focus, I will run towards the things Paul is warning about. You cannot run from one thing effectively without running to something that is able to save you from the thing that you're fleeing from. Read that one more time. You can't run from one thing effectively without running to something that is able to save you from the very thing you are fleeing from. Never forget early, early slow days, very early in our time here. And Little and I, if you're new and you're just visiting, I'm married to the gal that was playing drums and sang that last song. So uh, we, had, we were building the very first cabin here. And uh, there's still a lot of woods. This was all just wooded. It's all like old piece of property. And we could hear, and I was on the roof, and she was handing me up uh, plywood. We're sheeting the roof, and she's uh, handing me plywood up. And so she's running the saw and handing it up, and she's like, and the saw stopped, and we hear screaming, and hear screaming. It sounded like a kid screaming up on the hill up here. And so I was like, man, there's something going on up there. So she's like, we better, let's go see what's going on. And so I get down, and I remember I'm wearing my, my tool belt, and I had, my, I had a frame, a 28-ounce S-wing framing hammer. If, for those that know what that is, it's a big metal hammer that can create destruction. And we start up the hill, and uh, we get up there, and there's a girl, 18-year-old girl. She's being attacked by this dog. And uh, it's like, and the short story is, she had moved out, and her parents had gotten a dog and had it locked in the basement. She didn't know. They'd had the dog like a week, less than a week. She had come back home, got home early, come to visit. And she got off to college or something. She starts through the basement door and the dog attacks her. And the dog had attacked her all over the front yard. She had climbed up on the front deck. When we got up there, she's up on the front deck, which is elevated, and the dog couldn't get up there. And the dog's running back and forth and it's barking and she's screaming and screaming. And as we start up the hill, the dog figures out where the steps are, gets them on the deck, jumps on her. And we're yelling for her. And I thought, this girl's going to be dead. It's a long way. It's probably 150 yards. We're trying to get to her. And the girl finally rolls off the deck. And <clears throat> she hits the ground. And we're screaming, come, come, come this way, come this way. And she starts running. And she's running towards us. And that dog is running right behind her. And she's coming at me. And she's looking at me like, like a drowning victim. Like I thought, she's going like, to climb on top of my head like the gingerbread man on that fox, you know. And I thought, this is going to be bad. And so... I'm, so Little's calling, Little, come to me, come to me. So Little's calling her to run past me, and she runs past me. And that dog came past me. I swung that hammer so hard. So hard. And we will leave the story there. But I can tell you, an S-wing 28-ounce framing hammer with that waffle pattern head, dude, trust me. Here's the thing. And so, some, look, if you're a dog lover, I'm a human lover more, let's leave the story there. Okay, so, all right, so this girl was like, her, her, the arm, the muscle here on the back of her arm was separated and torn down. Her pants were completely gone, bite marks up and down her legs. Uh, she had bite marks where it had gone for her throat, and she had done this, they're all up and down. She was in bad shape. This dog would have killed her. You know what? She had been running, but she had nowhere to run to, and it kept catching up with her. You can't just run away from something. You've got to run to something that's got a big enough hammer to smack it in the head and kill it. Like, that's the moral of the story. And so he says, 
flee these things, pursue these things. Not just, so first, a man of God is defined by what he run, runs from. And second, what's he running to? What's he pursuing after? The things Timothy needs to run to are characteristics that will free him from the list of things that the false teachers and greedy men in Ephesus were <clears throat> guilty of. What am I after? What are you after? The pleasures of this life are fleeting, but eternity and its glory is forever. The pain and suffering of this life is fleeting, but eternity and its glory and forever is forever. The stress and pressure of ministry is fleeting, but the crown of glory is forever. And Paul would say to the Romans in Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in Christ Jesus. And you're going to labor and suffer, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult. And when ministry gets hardest, that's when it's going to be most natural to quit fleeing from this thing and quit pursuing this thing and run towards this thing that I've been running away from. That's when it's going to get easy to do that. We can pursue these things. To do so is my responsibility. What do you want from life? What will bring lasting pleasure? You know what will bring lasting pleasure? Christ. Obedience to Christ is the only thing that provides lasting pleasure. Let's pursue these things. To do so will require that I be aggressive and focused. Jesus said that I should cut off my hand or pluck out my eye if either causes me to sin. How ambitious and committed is my pursuit of these things? I'll tell you two stories. One from folklore and one from personal experience as a pastor. The one from folklore is the Irish legend of the red hand of O'Neill. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but the story was told that a group of uh, clan leaders were making a mad dash for the island of what is modern-day Ireland. And it, the deal was struck between all of the, the, the um, helmsmen and the ships. Whoever first lays hand or foot on the island, it's theirs. He's king of the island. And as the ships approached, this, this clansman, uh, O'Neill, was going to not be first, and another ship was going to get there. So he takes a battle axe, chops his left hand off and throws it onto the island and declares it for himself. And you're like, whoa, that's a crazy story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a fantastic story. <laughs> O'Neill. So if your name's Neil, it's a good name. But Jesus said if, if, if something like, would you cut your hand off to stop from, from sinning or pluck your eye out? And people are like, oh, it's, it's like what he's doing there is it's like a, it's an analogy. It's simile and a metaphor. I don't know what simile is. I don't know what metaphor. I never could get them two things figured out. Jesus said, gouge your eye out if it's causing you to sin. I'm pretty sure dude that walked on water, died, came back to life, cured leprosy, like straight up meant what he said when he was saying it. Whatever you got to do to make it stop, make it stop. Jesus was passionate about his own holiness. He's passionate about our holiness in ministry. He's serious about it. I told you I'd tell you a personal story. I was recently doing, uh, talking with a father. We were doing, I was doing pastoral counseling with the father, and the father is spun out because of a teenage uh, daughter and son who are out of control, and, he's, and he uh, raised them in the nurture and the admonition and instruction of the Lord, like I've got, you know, their older sister is walking with the Lord. She's going into ministry. She's a, she's a Bible college. She wants to be a missionary. What, what happened here? And we're kind of trying to work through this, and it becomes obvious that these kids are, they're, they're glued to this thing. 
Instagram, Snapchat. I'm not knocking any of your social media. Um, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Facebook. I don't think kids do Facebook as much anymore. I think they do Instagram, Snapchat. It's the main thing. Some other stuff in there, I'm sure. Um, you guys know. Um, but you've seen this, right? Where a kid left alone. My phone's not doing anything right now. It's in that lock screen mode. What are they doing? They're reading people's stories. That ain't a story. The red hand of O'Neill, that's a story. No. <laughs> we have lost the art of storytelling when that becomes a story. So what's happening, I begin to realize, oh, what's happening is these kids don't need you because they got, I'm like, who, how old are they again? 16 and, I think they're twins, 16, 16 year old twins. I'm like, what, who's paying, who's footing the bill on the phone thing? He's like, well, me and their mother pay for the bill. I'm like, all right, take their phone away. <gasps> take their phone away, dude. What in the world? Take their phone away. Don't be an idiot. I'm not a good, sometimes I'm good at pastoral counseling because people need to hear stuff like that. Sometimes I'm the worst guy at it because, <clears throat> and so I'm like, don't be an idiot with this, okay? So take their phone away. Uh, well, I took their phone away. Then they just get on the, the computer. Well, I'll take the computer away. Well, we need the computer for, I don't even remember what, for something. Oh, take, blow the computer up, shoot it with the, run over it with the truck. I don't, get rid of, get the computer out of the house, man. Dude, what, what's more important to you right now? Convenience of how you pay your bills or your child's salvation and holiness? What are we do- talking about? Get them out. So, the, the, but the statement at one point was made where he it came back to, well, there's, devi- there's iPads and there's devices and there's, a la- there's several laptops in, in the house and we run our business off of it. And I'm like, I'm like, can you do that from the office? Yeah, I can do it from the office. Then kill the Wi-Fi in the house. That'll stop it. It's not going to change their heart, right? We're not, we know that's not, taking Wi-Fi out of the house is not going to, but we're talking about taking drastic steps to defeat sin. And he's like, well, but sometimes at night, I like to use Wi-Fi. And I was like, you and me are done with this conversation. I have nothing else to offer to you. When your convenience and ease of entertainment in the evening is more important than your child's salvation, you'd rather get on the internet than save the soul of the child that you've been entrusted with. Me and you are living on different planets. And I don't know how to shepherd you through this. I'm just to be honest. I'm going to tell you my shortcomings. I don't know how to shepherd you through this. You ever get in that position as a ministry leader? You're like, you tell somebody something, you want to help them, you're trying to counsel them, and they come back a week or two or three later, and you're like, okay, let's talk about it. And they say the same exact thing. So you're like, uh, we've already discussed this. Let me give you, it's okay for you to say, we're not going to talk about this anymore until you do your part. Like, de-stress yourself a little bit in ministry. I don't have time to, like, beat dead horses in people's lives when they're not going to respond. Like, there is a fruit to repentance that Scripture talks about. There is godly sorrow, there is worldly sorrow. And when we teach and instruct and lead and people respond in repentance and sorrow, there's going to be fruit from that. And we get to see that, and that's a glorious thing. Hopefully we see it in our own lives. You see it in the lives of people God allows us to minister to. But take the pressure off yourself. Don't, you don't have to keep going in circles with somebody. Like, just around. It doesn't mean we don't want to be long-suffering with people. And people are, when somebody's like, I want to I suck the life out of an hour of your time. 
and then I'm going to go do what I want to do until the next time I want to come back and suck the life out of an hour of your time. That's not what God's called you to do. That's not shepherding. Wounded sheep, take care of them. Sick sheep, take care of them. But like, I want you to feel like there's, there is enough that Scripture clearly calls us to do that we don't have to get in the weeds of things that we're not clearly called to do. We're not called to walk with people through sin. I stand out here and throw the lifeline. So when it comes to what I'm pursuing after, the question then is, as I flee from this thing and pursue this thing, how serious am I about this? Because the point and teaching focus of this conference is the idea that we've got to guard our holiness. Like, keep a watch, a close watch. Got to keep a close watch on our holiness. Doesn't take care. Your righteousness takes care of itself in Christ. Jesus imputes that to you. So let me, let me give you some, some biblical definition and terminology. Scripture says that God in Christ declares you righteous. That's a legal declaration. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse, 7, verse 21, For our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. The Scripture is making it very clear that God imposes and imputes to you and declares on you the righteousness of Jesus. And in exchange for that righteousness, Jesus takes your sin into himself. This is why drug dealers, pimps, slave traders, child molesters, like can go from death to life and literally change. Because the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to them and they become new creations, new people. But like behavior modification doesn't bring righteousness. It doesn't bring righteousness. You can't like, well, I'll try to be a really good Christian and modify my behavior and, and it doesn't work. So it's a legal declaration where based on the merit and work of Jesus, we're declared righteous. But your holiness is something that you are to pursue after every day. These characteristics right here. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So as I pursue righteousness, I'm pursuing that which is just, which is rooted in Christ. I'm tethered to Christ. Tethered to Christ. I'm pursuing after that which has been declared true of me. But it's not like I'm getting dragged along by a rope, you know, just kind of fly. You ever pull somebody on one of those tubes in the boat? We have... We have a lake wreck here where we pull kids on the tube. They got to hold on to that tube and you're pulling them around and it's such a hoot to throw them off that tube. It's so fun. I don't, I don't ever do it, but we watch the videos and kids are like, go harder, throw me off, throw me off. And you toss them off, you know. It's not like that. It's, it's not like how hard can you hold on to your righteousness. It's not that. But, we're ta- but we are talking about the human responsibility in the work of being conformed to the image of Christ, Scripture is very clear that, that there are certain, now watch this, there are certain indicatives Scripture speaks of you. You are declared righteous. You are adopted. You are a new creation. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. 
You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and sealed. These are things that are indicatives. They are things that are spoken of you, about you, that are true of you, true about you. Scripture is also loaded with imperatives. These are commands that you are to follow. And so if we're not going to do this in such a way that it's behavior modification, what happens is we receive, accept, and submit to the indicatives. I am righteous. I am adopted. I am loved. I do have a new identity. I have been given a new name. Christ has raised me with, him, with himself in his own resurrection. As a result, I will now follow the commands of Scripture as a faithful servant and follower of Jesus Christ. It's, it's action of Christ leading to reaction of the believer. So what are we pursuing after? We've got a responsibility. Number three, man of God, woman of God, defined by what we fight and fight for. Fight the good fight of the faith. We're defined by what we fight for. We need men and women leading in ministry who fight for the things that Christ fought for. The word for fight is agonizomai, which we get the word agonize from. Example in that era would have been the description of Greek and Roman boxing matches. And boxing matches in those days, people would box and fight literally to the death. Matches were often to the death. Gloves were Similar to modern-day brass knuckles, they were made of fur-lined oxide with iron and brass inlaid. Eyes would be gouged out. You could bite. You could poke eyeballs. You could, there were no rules. This picture of fighting the good fight of faith. It's like what he's talking about here is there's going to be days where literally you are entangled with your flesh and with the cares of the world, and we're going to fight. We've got to fight. We've got to fight. We've got to fight. If we're going to do ministry well, we've got to fight. But there is a difference between knowing when to flee and when to fight. At first we were told to flee, now we're told to fight. When do you stand and fight? When do you flee? If a building was on fire and I was in it, or a bomb was about to go off in the building that I was in, I would run. But in a professional fight, be it boxing match, both men are expected to stand and fight. If you have a child that plays on the under-12 soccer team and the game starts and she turns and runs off the field. You're like, no, 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 that's not how this works. I bought your cleats. I paid a ridiculous amount of money for you to be in this league. We've driven here, and we're taking up our whole Saturday. You have to stay out there and play in this game. You know, like, there's, there's a time where it's not okay. Well, I was scared we would lose, so I ran away. No, we want to teach, right? We're teaching our kids. Nope, well, you might lose. You might lose bad. You might get beat really bad. You'll grow. It's good for character development. We're walking them through that. There's time to run. There's a time to stand and fight. And here he's given us instruction on what it looks like to fight. So what we are to fight for is the good fight of the faith, which for us in the context of iron on iron is the students and families that we're ministering to. How many of you, not by raised hand or anything like that, how many of you, you could name just boom right now, you could name a student that nobody's fighting for in this world. You've got names of kids that can come to mind. Boom, boom. Boom, and just like, oh man, how many times you sit across from a kid and you realize nobody's fighting for this kid. This kid lives in a war zone and nobody's fighting for him. Nobody's fighting for him. We're to fight the good fight of faith for those who might be brought from death to life or for those who already have been and we're fighting and laboring for their discipleship. Man of God is known by what he fights for and it's oftentimes going to be an agonizing battle. And lastly, he says this, Fight the good fight of faith. 
of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Take hold of the eternal life. A man of God is defined, a woman of God is defined by what he or she is holding on to, taking hold of. Paul reminds Timothy of his calling and his response to his calling. If you follow the rest of this chapter, verses 13 through particularly through 19, what you find is a reminder of the charge and the calling that Timothy's embraced. To remember what we're taking hold of, we need to remember that God called us to this. You're here because God laid it on your heart to work with students. It's a noble calling. It's a much-needed calling in a, in a society where the family is completely unraveled. So what are we taking hold of? So four things that define the man or the woman of God. Man or woman of God is defined by what he or she flees from, what he or she pursues after, what she or he fights for, and what he or she takes hold of. You get these things right, and our ministries will be effective, but in the context of this conference and this text, more importantly, our personal holiness will be something that is intact. Let me say this word to those of you who teach. It's a quote from a prominent pastor. I pulled this out of a sermon I was listening to. You ever do this? You're on the mower and you're listening to podcasts play and you're like, <gasps> I, gotta, I gotta listen to that again. 15 second, 15 second, 15 second. Did I get far enough back? <laughs> My thumbs don't work good on this little screen. Ah, shoot, I went too far. Yeah. You've been there. But I went home and wrote it down. Now, this isn't part of the sermon, but listen to this. I, this is in quotes, what I'm saying here. And there's a couple things in here that I probably don't totally line up and agree with this guy on. This guy's pretty hardcore. Now, this isn't part of the sermon, but listen to this. Here's some suggestions for a preacher. Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door. Nail up a sign. Quote, study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before texts and broken hearts and the lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in the community who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms really are. Engage him to wrestle with God all night long and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever, spouting remarks. Stop his tongue forever, tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence and bend his knees in the lonesome valley of suffering. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry over his life before God. Make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Amen. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in this gas tank. Give him a Bible, time to the pulpit, and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, game scores, and politics. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it day and night. Sir, we would see Jesus, and when at, la at last he does enter the pulpit, 
Ask him if he has a word from God. If he doesn't, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper. You can digest the television commentaries. You can think through the day's superficial problems. You can manage the community's weary fund drives. You can bless assorted baked potatoes and green beans ad infinitum better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus says the Lord. Break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. And when he comes to the end of these things, lay him in his coffin with a sword of the word of the Lord across his chest and write on his tombstone these words, here lies a man of God. That's intense. I said I didn't agree with it all. We don't want to neglect the sheep. If you were here for the pre-conference yesterday, we talked about the fact that there's a need, a, a dire need, that we be engaged relationally with people. But there's some things we can take out of this. The idea that your responsibility and my responsibility, the first to be mastered by the Word of God, submit to the Word of God, are critical first and foremost to the ministry that we're going to execute to the lives of those people God's entrusted us with. We've got to guard what God's entrusted us with, first personally, and then in the ministry to the students he's called us to. What are we fighting for? It's very important. Very important. Appreciate you being here. I'm going to pray, and we're going to close with a couple songs of worship together before we go eat. Okay? Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would take the truth of your word, drive it into our hearts. Take that which is from you right now, I pray. And make it clear and bring conviction and encouragement and exhortation. Take that which is from me and is of no value and please blow it into the wind like chaff. So that these people would forget those words. Pray that our hearts would be seated and rooted in the things that you would have us to know and understand and believe. I pray for our students. I pray for mamas and daddies that are not leading their families well so that parenting responsibilities are left to the student ministry of the local church. I pray that we would be diligent to do what you've called us to do in that, but that we would also be reminded of the need to protect our own families, to guard our own children and their sanctification. I pray that we would work and labor to not sow discord, but to bring unity in the local church. I pray for those here who may be at uh, a place where there's conflict, where there's pressure from the outside, where there's stress from the church. God, I pray this would be a refreshing time and we'd be reminded that, that these characteristics that Paul has charged and challenged Timothy with are characteristics that we can live and realize in our own lives. So help us, I pray, to realize these things. I pray that we would love our people well, but we would love your word more. You exalt your name and your word above all things your scripture teaches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. I pray that we remember that. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the empowering and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I pray that ministries would be impacted by the faithfulness of these people that are here this weekend. I pray that churches and communities would reap the benefit of faithful leaders. We love you. We thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, but I thank you, Holy Spirit, for, for dwelling in us and empowering our ministries. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, 
for adopting us as your sons and daughters and giving us an identity. I pray that as we sing to you right now, we'd worship and raise up words of truth that are proclamations and declarations about who you are, what you've done, and that we'd mean it. And you'd receive it as an offering from us in Jesus' name. Amen.